0: Good evening. How is everyone? Okay, this side's fine. Some of you guys. (laughs) My goodness. It's fun to start seeing people starting to come back. College is getting going. Semester is great, right? It starts off great, right? Every time. This was an epic week at Channel Islands. All you got was your syllabus, right? Told to read chapter one and come back next week. You're like, college ain't bad. So next week you'll drag yourself in here. So excited to be back with you guys. Got stuck in New York last week, but it was cool, so if you're going to be stuck, may as well be somewhere cool like Manhattan, right? So um, if you have a Bible, open up, we're going to conclude our study tonight in James. If you don't have a Bible, no shame, just put your hand up and one of these young gentlemen will come bring one to you. If you don't have one or you destroyed yours because you've just been writing and penning in it, you can keep this one. We always just don't ask that you hoard Bibles and sell them on eBay, you know, so as to keep if you need it. Or if you've got a fake Bible on your phone, you can use that too. So. James 5. We're going to be taking a look at the first eight verses. Kind of as you've seen through the, the course of the study, this is such a meaty letter that for us to do it in five weeks is almost impossible. I mean, each chapter is at probably at least two sermons, Um, and so, you know, with Zach filling in and and us kicking it off, sometimes we didn't hit every single word, but we um, did our best, but we we, um, love the book, all of it is great, and so tonight, if you want to go home and read the rest of it, let it impress upon your heart, but we'll be taking a look at the first eight verses. I'm going to pray, because I need help, and you need help, and so I'll do that um, in prayer, and then we'll get started, so pray with me. Um, Jesus, we just... um, We just ask that you would make this time sweet, Holy Spirit, that you would make this time sweet. It's going to seem as though this portion of scripture is not sweet at all. Um, It's going to seem tough. James has has certainly put us in tension before and he's going to do it again, but I pray that um, the redemptive conclusion of of what we'll take a look at will be so sweet on our lips that that as Dane prayed that we will have a perspective change, that we will see you more high and lifted up. we will uncover the areas in our lives where we have raised other things or we have raised ourselves up. And so we just pray for a recalibration tonight that we would take those idols down off their thrones and and put you back on your throne where you belong in our lives. And so we know you're on a throne in heaven right now. And so by the grace of the Holy Spirit, would you make that even more evident in our lives? tonight as we open your word. And so Jesus, we thank you for this book. We thank you for this study. I ask now that you uh, enable me to teach. Holy Spirit, that you enable your people here to learn and so that we can um, grow deeper in love with you tonight, this week, and moving forward. And so Jesus, only you can make that happen. We ask that you do so in your name. Amen. So James, great book, big book, thick book, written by Jesus's half-brother. If you haven't been here, Um, James was Jesus' half-brother and perhaps like all siblings in all of humanity when his brother, when James' brother Jesus said I am God, James said I don't believe you. And he went, all the evidence we have is that Jesus went into three years. Look, Jesus worked and was a family man and a brother and a son and a businessman and a business owner with his dad. And he he went out, he was a worker for for at least 18 years of his life. But then he moved into a public ministry. And all the evidence we have is that through those three years of public ministry, James and his other brothers and sisters did not believe necessarily that he was who he was claiming to be. It's a little understandable. Your older brother says, what? What? I'm God. You're like, eh, I don't know if God's been bunking with me for the last couple years. And so James struggled and it's, it's an amazing line. It's an amazing argument of apologetics that look, granted, we'll get you. I mean, we'll give you, it's a crazy claim. His own family almost didn't believe him. In fact, the the gospels tell us that at one point his brothers and sisters tried to grab him, tried to apprehend him because they said, Jesus, you're out of your mind. You're going to get yourself killed. And they tried to apprehend him because Jesus was claiming to be God. And we ultimately know that they didn't crucify Jesus because he befriended the outcast because he healed the sick. Those are called doctors now and we pay him a lot of money and we try to keep doctors alive, right? Why? Because they keep other people alive. They didn't crucify him because he befriended the outcast because he fed the poor. They crucified him because he said he was God. They crucified Jesus because he said he was God. And James didn't buy it for a long time. But as, as we've done, I love repetition. I love to drive things home. So you should know the answer if you've been here. What changed James's mind? The resurrection. That's a good way to convince your brother, right? All you have to do is die, stay in the grave for three days, come back and have a fish sandwich with him. That'll, change your, that'll probably change your sibling's mind on whether or not you're deity. Right? That's all you have to do to convince your... We've all tried. I've got a younger brother too. Tried, I definitely, in subtle ways, tried to make him believe I was the epitome of all sovereignty in the universe. <laughs> Poor little guy. He's a doctor in Missouri now, so he doesn't need me anymore. That's for sure. But, but Jesus died. And then he resurrected. And that's when James, as he started this letter, James and he could have said, brother, James, half brother. Wouldn't he have done that? Be like, Hey, <laughs> I bunked with this guy, right? Like you need to listen to me. What did he say at the beginning? One chapter one, verse one. He said, James, a bond servant. He went from brother to bond when he saw his half brother overcome death. Now James is but a bond before Jesus. He's worshiping his half brother. And then James goes on to lead the church in Jerusalem. Church history records that that he went preaching and teaching the gospel. He was in head leadership in the church. And a mob came to him after persecution. And we know that that prior to this, we know that, that great persecution had came on the church. Stephen was martyred. And then even extra biblical accounts says that Christianity, after Stephen was martyred, Christianity became under intense persecution. And so what happens is the church... Bugged out, they left, they fled. And this letter that James is writing is to the Christians who have fled that persecution. And James is in Jerusalem. He's leading a church. He's preaching the gospel and a mob comes to him and says, take it back. Take it back. Jesus is not God. He was not who he said he was. And James did not relent. And we know that they took him up on the temple mount and they threw him off and he hit the ground, and he didn't die. And then church history records that he prayed for the mob as one of them picked up a stick and bashed in his skull. See, James's heart was not established. It wasn't set in the things of this world. James's whole perspective was upside down when Jesus got out of the grave. Suddenly he realized that this was, this was about more than the world had to offer. Because everything the world has to offer ultimately leads to death. James had his entire perspective upended. Now his heart is established on the things of eternity. And so he's praying for them. As his half-brother prayed for others on the cross, he's now praying for the mob. An eternal perspective as they bash in his skull. James' heart was changed. And though the text is going to focus and we're going to talk about this tough concept of money, this is not a message about money. This is a message about your heart. There's an old saying that says that the heart of every issue is an issue of the heart. We see this replete in Jesus' ministry. He always got to the heart. They'd ask him just these chaotic questions, and he'd always, you notice how he always answered deeper than they even asked? Do you notice that? He always got to the heart of the issue. Like, Pharisees came up and said, look, how do we divorce our wife? And he's like, have you not read, which was him mocking them, to be honest, all, they'd, all they have ever done their whole life is read, the Pharisees. Some to you think Jesus was just always nice, not the case. Certainly not with the religious people. <laughs> have you not read that God created them male and female? The guys must have been like, I'm asking you if I can divorce. He's like, I'm, I'm beyond that. I got to get to the heart. You don't understand what marriage is. You take a look at Jesus's response to these questions where they try to corner him. What does he do? He doesn't just answer the question. He goes to the heart of the issue. And so tonight is not wrapping up James in hopes that we're going to blast the offering out of the box. You know what? If this is the only Sunday night you don't, don't give tonight. I want you in no way to think that we're trying to conclude this with a call to the agape box. Our church, I love what Zach said a couple weeks ago. He's like, look, if you think we're trying to get you at your money, give it to another church. Right? It's an act of faith to give 10%. I'm not begging for your money. But James addresses this issue. Why? Because he knows it's one of the closest things to our heart. And so I want to talk a bit about some of the the themes that, that James has been setting up through the book. We'll do kind of a recap. It's always good to kind of take a look at how we've gotten to where we are. And I, I would argue that one of the overarching themes has been rooting and establishing your life in a dependence upon God Without through this book of James. I'll give you just a few examples. In chapter 1, we talk about establishing your heart with this, this joy amid trials, which doesn't really make sense, Right? Joy, trial, no, no, we should go anxiety and trial. Titled law and liberty are like those things don't go together. James is constantly putting in this tension between concepts. And so in chapter 1, this, is, this establishing your heart with joy amid trials. Why? Because we know that it leads to maturity in the faith. God can even redeem the trials. In verse 17 of chapter 1, it says establishing your heart essentially is in every good, in that every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. See, James has had his whole paradigm shifted. He says, even in the tough times, I'm remembering all the good things that I have, all the common grace experienced by everyone, every breath I take. Every time I feel rain like we did today, right? Do you know that that was a sign of God's common grace? It was not the apocalypse, Right, Bible says that it rains on the just and the unjust. This is a sign that God pours out on all people to sign a common grace. I know we hate it and we cower, and like no one went outside today. You made it, congrats! By the way, bravest people in TO apparently. Right. But it says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. In verse 22 of chapter 1, it says that we are to not, we're just, we're, we're to establish, and it doesn't use the establish your heart language, but it says that we're to establish our heart not just as hearers of God's word, but as doers of God's word. See, James' whole heart had been shifted. This was not just about showing up to church and hearing a sermon. This was about showing up to church to be equipped to live a sermon for James Chapter 2, verse 5, we see that, that he calls us, in a sense, to establish our heart and that God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith in the heirs of kingdom. He didn't pick the best kids. He picked the most troublesome kids. Congrats, you made it. Right? I was one of the terrible ones that he picked. Yay! He says he chooses the poor. In other places, it says that he uses the the, the simple to confound the wisdom of the wise. We know that the meek will inherit the kingdom of, earth, of, of God, the kingdom of God. Chapter 2, verse 8 talks about loving your neighbor as yourself, fulfilling the royal law according to the scriptures. James has had his, his heart now established in, in, in verse 24, and it says that that we're to have this heart in a faith that produces works, a faith that is seen in works. And I hope we were very clear on that. I hope I laid that out as clear as possible so many people stumble, stumble over James 2 Where it says you can see that they're justified By their works And all he's saying is look You can see who is justified Why? Because their faith is producing works And I use the analogy It's as simple as the chair It took faith to sit in this chair Every single one of you had faith That that chair would hold you Some chairs you go into an team shop You're like mm, no Have a seat Nah I don't have faith Why in that chair? I don't think any one of you thought about that When you sat down in this chair You put faith in that chair Right, and all James is saying is like, "Do you have faith in this chair?" Someone professing your faith. I have faith in that chair, and then James is like, "All right, sit down. Oh, I'm good, <laughs> but you have faith in that chair. I do. I have a seat, then. Right? And to be honest, to be honest, when it comes to money, as we're going to get to, there's a parallel for 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 your your, your tithing. You be, you you believe God is who He says He is? Absolutely. You believe the Bible says He'll give you everything you need. Absolutely. You believe that He says He will bless the 10%. He will sanctify the 90% if you trust Him with the 10%. Absolutely. All right. Drop in your tithe. I'm a little tight this month. Right? Have a seat. A faith that produces works. It's not that you're saved by works. By any means. So we saw again that James is encouraging us to put our heart in a faith that is seen by the works that it produces in chapter 3. He impresses that we're establishing this heart in, in, the words, in words that bless instead of words that curse. We see that the tongue is, a, is, a, is an incredible tool that can be used for blessing and it can be used for curse. See also in chapter 3 That, that we're to establish this, this idea That we're to put our heart, we're to put our faith We're to put our hope in heavenly wisdom Instead of demonic wisdom In chapter 4 And I admit I, I, had, I was unable to, to hear Listen to Zach's sermon last week I will this week But just looking at the chapter we know that We're to establish our heart in humility instead of pride And in the will of God Rather than the arrogance of man And a litany of other things I've just pulled out a few But this idea of establishing your heart, let's start there. Because it's often a question, and and look, I'll, 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 let's be honest, there's a lot of college students here, okay? And one of the things that you've been preparing for and you currently are preparing for in college is to what? It's to establish yourself, right? Like, very few people are like, I've arrived, it's college, I'm done after this, right? Some of you have, that's, you know... It's going to be a brutal awakening here pretty soon. Like, that's it. There's nothing after college. I wish it was a 10-year program, right? But what have you been doing in kindergarten? What are you doing? In preschool, what are you doing? You're setting yourself up. Preschool is intended to what? To establish some of the discipline you need to get through what? Kindergarten. And then in kindergarten, they say, look, you're going to set this foundation of of just how to learn, how to listen, how to be in a school. Why? For first through fifth. Through first through Eighth grade, right? Then you get into high school, and what are you told? You got to establish that academic record to what? Get into college, right? Get into college. Get into a trade school. Get into a profession, even. But then you get to college, and if you're in college, you're told what? This isn't the end of the road. This is the next layer of what? Establishing yourself for a career. Some of you think the career is the end game. Nope. Guess what your career does? You're establishing your retirement. Work, save, make a little bit of a difference if you can. Sell some things. Why? Put it away. Establish yourself to what? Work till I'm 98. No. Retire, right? And so all through school, all you're doing is, is being trained and, and girded up and, and given this establishment mentality, which is, to a certain extent, it's okay. So we see that in school. We see it in career. We see it in marriage, in your career. And I, and I preach this hard, too. I want, especially men, I want you to have careers, not simply jobs. I want you to have vision. I want you to have plans. I want you to convey that to the woman up front. She needs to know if she's getting on a good ship in terms of marriage, with where you're heading, with where you're steering this relationship, and career sets this foundation. You're establishing a foundation for marriage. And then you get married and you establish a foundation for what? A family, don't you? You're constantly establishing these layers in your life. Health. Look, I I like going to the gym. I did it before I came here. But we try to set this foundation. We try to establish these things that then propel us to be able to function. I want to be able to play with my kids for decades to come. And so we, we establish these, these foundations. And again, I mentioned retirement. And now I'd like to go into the, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but even retirement. Retirement sends us, we, look, we, we establish retirement in order to, to, to relax, to, to travel, which can be a good and a great thing, but, but we're constantly, through all areas in our life, being told to establish for things to come. We are rarely challenged to be content with what we have. Rarely. And look, let's be honest, all of this, all of this, Boils down to money. I don't know if you know this. College isn't free. Some of you know it all too well. Some of you maybe have very gracious parents. You're not paying a dime and you think this is fun. It's free. It's easy. I get to live somewhere else. I can do whatever I want. Someone is paying. Okay? This is not a Bernie Sanders speech. Okay? Someone has to pay for everything. Okay? Low blow. Apparently, he has trees that grow money. I don't know. But. Everything, look, look, school, look, you get out of the free public system, and we do that too. I went to public school, everyone was like, I love it, it's free education. Really? Who paid those teachers? The government. With what money? What did they sell to give them money? Nothing. Taxes. Everything comes, some of you are like, well, there's free, this and that. Look, you talk about Norway, they get free education. No, they don't, they get taxed at 60%. They get taxed at 60%. Everything does ultimately. Come down Do someone pays for it. I don't know if you know this. Kids aren't free. Just had one a month ago. Diapers, not free. I've asked at Target. It's super cheap at Target, but still not free. Get all the coupons we can. Still not free. They eat. Apparently kids eat. I've learned this. I have to pay for them to eat, right? Clothes, and they grow out of them like that. I've been wearing the same medium t-shirt for like 20 years now, okay? My boys are done with it. They're like six months, 12 months, 18 months, year. And they just, it all comes down to money. It does. Let's just be practical. This is not pie in the sky teaching. We understand that. And it's interesting because here's how he kicks it off. Let me show you something's going to happen. Chapter five, come now you rich. And here's what just happened. All you're like, oh, good. He's not talking about me. Oh, thank goodness. He's talking about the rich people. Let's talk about that. Maybe Bernie should get up here, right? (laughs) Let's talk about the rich people. Let's talk about what they, do you know? Do you know that if you make $25,000, which is slightly more than 10 bucks an hour, 10 bucks an hour times the amount of work hours in a year, which is 2080 is $20,800, which was my first job. If you make $25,000 in a year, you are in the top 2% of income earners in the world. 25. 25 grand. Some of you're like, "Well, I I'm, I'm not working, I'm in college." If you're in a household that makes over $25,000 a year, you are under the protection of the top 2% of people in the entire world. I'm not I'm not belittling struggles in America by some by any means. But the median Income, median household income in America. Census Bureau released it for 2014. After taxes, they'll do it for 2015. I imagine it's gone up. We'll see. Median household income for America. 51,000, I think 939, almost 52. Almost double what it takes to just be in the 2% of the world. Anyone traveled to third world countries? I went to Haiti a couple years ago. Poorest country in the southern hemisphere. $25,000 puts you in the top 2%. And we're in a political season and they're going to try to whip people up, try to turn everyone against the rich. And the irony is almost every single person in America is the rich. The world over, you have to have your perspective changed. So he says, come now, you rich, and we can't dismiss this. As Americans, we don't get the luxury of saying, well, then I'm not included in this. I don't have to worry about this. This isn't a hard issue for me, it's a hard issue for others. Let's talk about them. Welcome, America. We are the rich. But money isn't bad. I need you to know this. Money isn't bad, it's dangerous. There's a difference. Money is not bad. A time for a different study. I can show you the biblical understanding of monetary exchange. I've read books on it. Money is not bad, but when it becomes the desire of our heart, it leads to death. Money is not bad, but it is dangerous. Alcohol is not bad. I can show you the verses where it's declared to be a sign of God's blessing. But when it becomes to the desire of your heart, it breeds drunkenness, which is dangerous. Alcohol is not bad intrinsically, but it is dangerous. Food is not bad, okay? We know this. Some of you are like, the Bible speaks of gluttony, so I'm just gonna not do food. That'll last about 40 days. Food is not bad, but the Bible repeatedly Instructs us that it is dangerous because when it is mixed with the desires of our heart, it can lead to gluttony. We can put our hope in alcohol, that it will relieve us, that it will satisfy us. We can put our hope in food, that it will comfort us. We can put our hope in money, that it will secure us, that it will free us. And though it's not bad, James will argue that it is quite dangerous. And we see in 1st Timothy 6:10 for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. If love wasn't there, we would all be screwed. We would be. If it just says for money is the root of all evil. You can't get a job if you're a Christian. You can't turn a profit if you're Christian. You need to constantly be in a deficit. But what he does is he says look It's the love of money It's the desire It's that you put your hope and your trust That you establish your heart in money That's what leads to all kinds of evil And before we go on it says look Come now you rich Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you Like who's excited You're like yay I love this Great conclusion to the study He's going to set this that look Money is dangerous, and love of money is deadly. As you'll see. And I want to set a backdrop real fast because I was a communications major. I know Zach is too. I'm a nerd. I love these studies. There was a study done in 2014 or released in 2014. You can look it up online. It's by a company called Media Dynamics Incorporated. The title of the study is America's Media Usage and Ad Exposure. And so if you Google that, the top it's the top link. There's, a, there's like a, a press release. Some of the calm people are freaking out right now because you just learned about that last semester, right? And so there's like a two-page summary press release. You can read the findings. You don't even have to get into all the nerd jargon or look into the 40,000-page study that they did. All right? But it was interesting that they noted that the, the average American daily consumption of media has grown from 5.2 hours per day in 1945 to 9.8 hours per day in 2014. About 10 hours a day is spent... Ten hours a day. Most of you don't even work that long. I don't. I try to stick to eight eight hours. Ten hours a day. We are, whether knowingly or unknowingly, consuming ads. I'm in marketing, okay? I'm in marketing. I'm a part of it. Part of the problem in that sense, okay? About 10 hours a day. And they only looked at the five major media outlets. TV, radio, newspaper, internet, and magazines. They didn't include billboards, which we don't really have any out here, but I was just in New York. Billboards still live, right? There's buses with the signs. How many of you sit behind a bus and you're you're sitting at the the butt end of a bus and what are you looking at? Like a news anchor. You know, like five, channel five, watch, you know. You're looking at an ad. Didn't even account for that. Just the five major media outlets. The result was... According to this study, 362 ads per day. 362 ads per day. Now think about your Instagram feed, right? How many of you follow? How, raise your hand if you follow at least one brand on Instagram one brand, one band, one nonprofit, one photographer, any of that. When they're posting, those are ads. Those are ads. Some of you are like, I know, I follow your clothing company and it's ridiculous. Stop. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I'm not going to stop, by the way. <laughs> but uh, um, I'm part of the problem. I repent. Okay? So, now it was interesting too that, that five years prior to the release of it, in 2009, it had peaked up at like 700 ads per day. But what happened? We figured out what? Netflix? Hulu? Like commercials? Barbaric. No, thank you. Right? <laughs> Have we done that? We've scrapped that, right? Have you know anyone watched The Biggest Loser? Right? I predicted this back in college. I graduated in 2003, long time ago. In, I think, my junior year, I predicted that because of DVR, and at the time it was TiVo. TiVo was, like, the biggest thing. I know some of you are giggling. It's like saying Nintendo up here, but, Right? <laughs> At the time, I predicted that we, in our class discussion, that we would see the return of blatant product placement in TV shows like they had back in the 50s. Like they would stop in a sitcom and be like, delicious Coca-Cola. Anyone watch The Biggest Loser? What do they do? They come in and they're like, oh, I'm so surprised. They walk into the kitchen. There's my trainer. He's like, yes, I'd like to talk to you about 14 great flavors of Dan and yogurt, right? All your products are coming back into your TV shows. Why? Why? Because Dan and yogurt can't take out an ad anymore because you're not going to see it. They can't take out a television ad. We watch it on Hulu. No ads. And they give you like the two, and what do you do? you like, go on your iPad instead. And they force you to watch two commercials, don't you? So it went, up to like, it went up to like 700 a day. So we've backed off of that. We've got ad blockers. We've got this, that, and the other. But we're still consuming about 362 ads a day. And what are these ads telling you? You don't have this, and you need it. Maybe you have this, but you don't have the latest version of it. It's telling you what you don't have. It's telling you what you have is not good enough. It's telling you that you need the newest, the latest, the greatest. You have one similar to this, but it's not the coolest new version. It never breeds contentment. It's a treadmill. It's a treadmill. And look, I confess, I was in New York. What was I doing in New York? Meeting with 12 major magazines to get products placed in editorials. Sat with Vogue and Cosmopolitan and New York Magazine, all sorts of stuff. High-end beauty editors sat there and I'm pitching our product to be placed in stories this year. So I know the grind. 362 messages at least a day are telling you, you should not be content with what you have. And so it sows this discontentment. It's a treadmill so we give our lives to what they tell us that we need these things in order to what? to be satisfied that is the biblical definition of slavery America we think we are free yet we are slaves to a whole new slew of masters and it breeds discontentment in our heart and we're establishing our heart on what we do not have or what we have but need a newer version of And so he goes into this next part and he says, you are riches. And to be honest, what he's talking there is most likely food stores because he's going to go into gold and silver, which talks about currency. So when he says you're riches, there's a little disagreement, but some people definitely agree. I'm in the bucket that thinks when we're talking about riches, we're talking about your ability to store up food, which was one of the greatest ways you could show wealth in the ancient times is that you had food whenever you wanted in abundance. Food, and we do in America. I've joked and I'm not, I'm not, it's not a joke, but this is the only country where our homeless has an obesity problem. It's not a joke. It's true. Even our homeless have tons of food gluttonous. And I look, I get that they're obese a lot of times because they're just eating the wrong types of food. I get it. I'm a nutrition coach. I know. But when you go to Haiti and you see hunger, it, it changes your perspective. And so he says Look Your riches are corrupted Rotten is the better translation That's why most people think That they're talking about food So you could say It is your food is corrupted Or your stores are corrupted Your garments are moth eaten Your gold and silver are corroded And their corrosion Will be the witness against you And will eat your flesh Like fire You have heaped up treasure In the last days. So, the what is this? The what is that your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth eaten, your gold and your silver has corroded. The why is because we've placed our trust in those things. Not because they're intrinsically bad, but because they're dangerous and we've now mixed it with the desires of our heart. We now pursue those things in our heart and therefore understand that they have become corrupted, they have become moth eaten, they have corroded, they are perishing. This is what James is arguing. He's getting to the heart of it. It's not so much about money. It's always about the heart. And so we've put our trust in these things and we base our worth on how much the things we own are worth. We base our worth on how much the things we own are worth. Do we not? Just me. Never mind. Okay, so... And, and it's, it's interesting that if you read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, James is echoing one of Jesus' teachings here. I'll read it for you. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Anyone like the band Thrice when he wrote about moth and rust? Never mind. All right, terrific. Two of us. And where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, for where your treasure is, for where your debit card statement says you are, that's the modern translation of the original language, for where your line by line debit card statement is, there your heart will be also. Now, let's talk about the heart real fast. one of the ways that we know what's in our heart is by what comes out of our mouth, do we not? Luke 6.45 says this, for out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And we talked about that in James 3. That look, what you say ultimately reflects what's in your heart. That the mouth, the words that you use are not evidence of simple audio vibrations. They are evidence of what is truly in your heart. And so we know that one of the ways that we can see what's in our heart or hear what's in our heart, is by the ways that we speak. James is arguing. Another way we know what's in our heart, Jesus is arguing. Another way that we know what is in our heart is by how we spend our money. And some people are like, look, you know, this is a line that, you know, the church needs to, no, this is a heart issue. And I'm not trying to get into your pocketbook. We don't need your money. But Jesus does want your heart. And he knows they are very close. They are very close. As your words are evidence of what's in your heart, so too is your debit card statement. And this is not for other people to be able to judge you by. This is for you to go home tonight, this week, print out your debit card statement and take a look line by line, where is my heart? If this was the evidence of my life, what would it say about me? It's not for me to look at it and say, look, you haven't been this, that and the other. This is for you. This is a hard issue between you and God. Just as we talked about, look, works are evidence of our faith. And if you say God is who he says he is, that you trust him, that when you tithe percent, and by the way, the first reason we tithe is why? Because Jesus was the tithe to the church. God gave of his first fruits in Jesus. That is first and foremost, the point of tithing is to reflect as a body of believers that we sacrifice our first fruits as God sacrificed his first fruits. That's where Tithing begins. And we know that he says, when you give that 10, I will take that 90 to greater extents than you could have ever done with the 100. But some people say, I believe God, but, and then James would say, then drop in a tithe. And some of you think you get out of it because you're in college. You don't want to be pressed on this. This might be your last Sunday coming to God speak. I don't make enough money. If you make any. God would say, evidence of your salvation is that you trust that he'll do with 90, which you can't do with 100. It's been evidence in my own life, Carissa and I, if we've ever slumped in that, and God's not a genius says, look, you have to pay him off. But we've seen that we can't take 100% as far as God can take 90. And most mature Christians at some point, which have fallen in and out of a tithing rhythm, will confess the same. I'd ask you to, to talk with people more mature in the faith even than me. Ask them about some of their financial struggles. Ask them about their dependence upon God and their tithing. Talk to your parents. Talk to your pastors. Talk to elders. Talk to people in your discipleship groups. Ask about that. You'll hear from God in that moment how he works in the hearts of his people. It's not about the 10%. It's about your heart. And so we see this is one of the ways I think Jesus would argue in Matthew 6. Again, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Where you spend your money is where your heart is. And some of you are struggling with that, I know. There's a glorious ending to this whole thing. And there's two ways I would say that we use money in general. One is to inoculate us from anxiety. And look, you talk to pastors, most pastors understand that, that some of the major issues that they deal with are in fact regional. If you talk to pastors in D.C., like Pastor Eric Mason, he would say the big overarching sin that he has to as a collective body of believers that they have to fight against is this desire for power. I was at Kim Tim Kim Kim Kellers Tim Kellers Church in Manhattan when I was snowed in through Sunday. He would argue that that the, the 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 financial success of his community is one of the biggest burdens, one of the biggest things that they struggle with. You go down to Texas with Matt Chandler, he would tell you one of the biggest issues that he has combat is religiosity. People in the Bible belt. It's like I've always gone to church, I know about Jesus. You go up to Seattle, you talk to some of the pastors up there. It's the godlessness. There's anti-gospels, there's non-gospels, there's false gospels. In L.A., you talk to Tim Chaddock. Well, he's now in London, actually, Planning Reality London. But he would say that the biggest issue that they dealt with was sex. And look, everywhere does all people struggle with all of these things? Yes, but there are emphasized, regionally emphasized sins and issues that we struggle with based on our community. And in my time in pastoral ministry, here in the Canao Valley, I would say ours is comfort. We pursue comfort. Do we struggle with sex, drugs, power? Ab- yes, all of that to be sure, but I would say that the default mode of the Caneel Valley's heart is a pursuit of comfort. Why? Cuz we want comfortable weather. Today freak people out. How are the trees moving? It's called wind. We want comfortable cars, we want comfortable jobs. That's why the Marine Corps can't recruit out of Thousand Oaks. (laughs) I've gone up there. Those guys have like three recruits a year. I'm kidding. There's more than that. But it's like, that's not a comfortable pursuit. Parents aren't like, that'd be a great thing for you to go into. We pursue comfortable paychecks, comfortable jobs, comfortable cars, comfortable homes, comfortable retirements, comfortable clothes, comfortable weather, comfortable vacations, comfortable portfolios. This is what we pursue in this general Southern California region, is comfort, and it's ultimately tied down to our ability to make enough money to purchase comfort in our lives. But here's the irony: Money doesn't lead to a lack of anxiety, it actually leads to more. You talk to people. It's, it's actually crazy. When you talk to highly successful people that they fawn over the old days when they ate ramen, man, things were simple back then. like, "Homie, you have a mansion, I know, but I have to pay for that mansion every month." People are like, "Man, I can't wait to make three grand a month." They're like, "My mortgage is five grand a month. That's just to have a place to sleep. People have $800 car payments. car payments. That's before food. The more you have, the more you have to lose. I've got a quote here from Soren Kierkegaard. He's a Danish philosopher. He said, Riches and abundance come hypocritically clad in sheep's clothing, pretending to be security against anxieties, and yet they become the object of anxiety. They secure a man against anxieties, and this is where he's being a little funny, they, they secure a man against anxieties just about as well as a wolf that is put to tending the sheep. So the first way I think we use money is to inoculate ourselves from anxiety and uncertainty. And yet the irony is the accumulation of wealth leads to more anxiety about the loss of wealth. On Friday, Jeff Bezos, who's the co-founder of Amazon, woke up to a portfolio which overnight had depleted $6 billion dollars. Did it knock him off the world's richest man list? He's still up there. No. But dude in one night lost 6 billion. It's a B billion dollars as stock plummeted. And I'd say the second ways that we use it to secure a future what we believe to be a future of freedom. If we can accumulate enough, we'll, we'll have no anxiety now. And my hope is that I'll have enough so that I have no anxiety then. And this is portfolio and this is investment. I'm going to talk about the fact that, look, it's not bad to steward your money well. Don't take me in that sense at all. But, but we'd use it to inoculate ourselves now. And then we build up this security, this hope, this trust that we'll have no anxiety then. There's a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You guys know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is? He's a pastor. I more lovingly refer to him as a gangster because he he was a pastor in Germany during World War II, got a bunch of dudes together in a prayer circle and said, we're going to kill Hitler. Now that, that plan was foiled and he was martyred, but what a heck of a way for a pastor to go out trying to kill an absolute maniac. Any more pastors like that? I don't know how you should take that, but don't don't worry about that. (laughs) He said this. (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to tell a Trump joke or anything. Okay, so check this out. Earthly goods, he says, earthly goods deceive the human heart into believing that they give us security and freedom from worry. But in truth, they are what cause anxiety. And you know this to be true. Who's driving their first car right now? Some of you don't know because you're, you're in that sweet stage where you've got your first car. How many, be honest, be honest it's SoCal, maybe some of you can't identify because your first car was like a three-year-old Lexus or something, right? I'm not making fun of you, but I am at the same time. My first car was a 1988 Suzuki Samurai. It was a micro machine. It was a box on wheels from Minnesota. Drove it here in the dead of summer, August, the southern route had to turn on the heat and roll the windows down. It's the only way you could keep the engine cool enough is by turning on the heat as I drive through New Mexico and Phoenix in August. (laughs) My parents are here tonight, if you don't know this, from Minnesota. My dad paid for that thing with a personal check for $1,500. They drove with me on that trip. They saw me with a shirt wrapped around my head, shirt off, wrapped around the head, windows down, cranking the heat in August in Phoenix. This little micro-machine, rusted underbelly from the salt, because we have snow out there. I know you've never heard of that. But we have snow, and so then they salt the, 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 the streets, and then the salt gets up into the underbelly of a car and starts to eat away everything. In fact, I was driving down the 405, and I hit like a bump, and my mufflers went it was over. And then it sounded like I had modified my muffler. People are like, what's he rolling? A broken muffler. <laughs> Did you get that thing customized? No, I broke it on the freeway. It's like some of you paid for that. I had that for free, right? <laughs> this car was falling apart and it was epic. I learned later, like my junior year, the whole thing is a four-cylinder engine. So, you know, it had power. I could barely make it up from Camarillo. I used to have to hit 75 just to be able to get to the top of the hill, right? Come to find out that thing wasn't even a four-cylinder. It had been running on three for Lord knows how long. <laughs> stick shift. Some of you have no clue what a stick shift is right? Old school. And guess what? I didn't care a bit. It was awesome. (laughs) Then I bought my first car after college. Then you don't want to park near certain people, right? You get that thing vacuumed every other day, right? You notice a scratch. You could have keyed, you could have wrote my name on the side of my Suzuki Samurai. I would have not known. (laughs) I just knew I had a way to get from A to B quicker than my feet, no anxiety about that. And then I bought my first car with my money, not my dad's. What happens? You come, near my, you come near my freaking car. I paid for this thing. What happened? I got something better and now I've got more anxiety about it. Now I have more to lose. Right? Then I bought a motorcycle. I cleaned that thing, right? The more you accumulate, the more you have to lose. And so it actually causes more anxiety. How many of you did that? You had like a super old phone and you finally got your iPhone, right? And what did you do? You bought a $400 case for that thing. It's an ice block, right? Didn't you? You, you almost doubled your bill just getting a case for that thing, didn't you? You remember that? You're like, oh, I've got an upgrade. I'm going to walk out of here. How did I spend $130? It was on the, the cover. It was on the case, Right? This is insane. We got something better and what happens? Now we're more, now I'm gonna shatter this glass at some point. I gotta protect this thing. We get more and yet then we realize we have more to lose. Stuff creates more anxiety, not less. And I'll tell you, the rich in this country are the furthest thing from content. The furthest thing from content. And I I do want to make this point real fast. I'm not saying that being a good steward um, and putting your hope In something is the same thing We have to diverge that Being a good steward of what you have is proper Plan, retirement Yes, I get all that I'm trying to do that as well I am stewarding what I have But whether I have relatively a lot of money I'm to steward it properly And if something happens and I wake up on a Friday And it's decreased by 60% I'm to steward that properly What I'm not saying is that Stewarding your finances properly Is the same as putting your hope In your finances it 's the heart of the issue it 's not the money it 's the heart and how closely knit it is to that money and so don 't take me as saying that being a good steward and putting your hope in is it and putting your hope in money is the same and so we don 't put our hope in those things some of you have you 've put your hope. In education, you've put your hope in an impending career. You've put your hope in, if I get a career, I will be satisfied. If I finally get a place on my own, I will be satisfied. When I get my degree, I will be satisfied. When I make my first 50 grand, I will be satisfied. When I make my first 75 grand, then I will be satisfied. When I finally hit six figures on my, then I will be satisfied. What's happening is that your heart's desire is starting to mix with something that's very dangerous, and it leads to death. It's not money. That's the root of all evil. It's the love of money. Maybe I'll jump down a second. Fidelity did a financial services um, study. Fidelity is a financial services corporation. They did a study. Again, I want to change your perspective a bit. They did a study of people with a million dollars, their clients, people that have a million dollars outside of, outside of real estate and outside of retirement, okay? So take maybe multiple houses, the one they live in, the one they go to in the winter, take those off the table, take their 401k, take their Roth IRA, take that all off the table. They still have a million dollars to play with. 42% of them said they did not feel wealthy. A million dollars of just assets in a portfolio apart from homes, apart from their comfy retirement. Did it produce contentment? I don't feel wealthy. I need more. Why? I need more. Some of you think that. Same thing. I've been there. I've worked my way up the ladder. I've seen an increase. For those of you that don't know, I'm not on church staff. I'm in the corporate world. I know if I can just get to this, I can provide for my family. And then I get there and it's like, but if I get to that. And on we go. Fidelity takes a look and they say, I got a million dollars just to play with. I, didn't, I need more than that. Like you have a million dollars. Like I know, isn't it awful? I need, what if I had two? Now, where does this come from? We're talking about the heart. Where does this come from? I would argue that it comes from being made in the image and the likeness of God. And you say, wait a minute. What you need to know is that in the Bible, it says, look, we are the only part of creation that was created in the image and the likeness of God. It's known as the Imago Dei. I love bringing this up. The image of God, the Imago Dei. So God, unlike all of creation, unlike the mountains, unlike your cat, unlike the fish, unlike snakes, unlike trees, we are stamped with God's image and likeness. And so we have, we have characteristics that we can understand him by differently than all of what's known as lower creation. We're not God, but we're also not animals. We're right in the middle, creating the image and likeness of God. So when God pours down on his people, our job, though we're a fractured mirror, our job is to reflect God to a broken world. You've heard me say that before, I'm gonna keep saying it again. We were created in the image and the likeness of God. Now the likeness of God entails the fact that he is eternal. Did you know that you have eternity written on your heart. Whether we accept God or reject him, eternity is a reality. People say the only things that are certain in life are death and taxes. False. Death, taxes, and eternity. We are headed for eternity. Our soul cannot be satisfied with the things of this world our soul can only ultimately be satisfied in the eternal presence, the eternal fellowship, the eternal glory of God. Some of you think you are a body with a soul. I would argue you are a soul that for a short time has a body. The likeness of God that we share is this propensity toward eternity. And so we need more we, we have to fight against contentment. Because if I make 50, but what could I do with 75? What could I do with 100? What could I do with this? Because we're constantly wanting more, knowing there's no end in sight for our desires. Because ultimately those desires can only be satisfied by him who has no end. And so we contend on an earthly level with that. We want things here to satisfy that which can't be satisfied here. And so we're left hungry, thirsty, constantly looking for more. And First John 2.17 says this, and the world and the things of this world are passing away. It says, and the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And in verse four, It says, indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabaoth. Did I pronounce that right, Dad? I got it wrong. Sabaoth? Sabaoth. By the way, my dad was in the pulpit for 40 years. Right? That's why I'm so nervous. That's why I'm sweating to preach in front of him, okay? This is not the Lord of the Sabbath, this is the Lord of hosts, which means he's the Lord of the armies of heaven. Okay? And it says, you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts. There it is. Your desire has been for the accumulation of more, to get fatter and fatter in the things of this world, whether that be wealth, whether that be clothes, whether that be designer jewelry, jewelry. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered. And you're like, well, I haven't murdered. It's not part of this. this. Is not clearly not talking to me. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. And some of you think, well, I don't have that many things. I'm not, ri- okay, I get the whole 25 grand thing, but seriously, you should see my dorm room. I don't have that much. It's not even my bed. It's a dirty bed that's been used by many a student before me. I don't have that many things. I remember that. I remember just stealing couches from like the lounge, dragging them into my, at Kowloon, like dragging them into my, and I was an RA, which was the best part. No one would search my room, right? (laughs) We went down to the athletic building at one point. I'm like, I need a fake ficus tree. (laughs) (laughs) Just liven up the room a little bit right? We used to cut out magazine, but we had a whole wall where we covered the whole thing in surfing and snowboarding magazine stuff, right? Just wanted to look like our room had something. It was so bare. We had like a 1984 TV with a VCR. Most of you don't know what that is, okay? I know what it's like. You feel, I I don't really have that many things. This one's tough. If if you're going to leave, hurry, now's the time. Because 1 Timothy 6, 6-11 says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Oh, this part's the worst. This part's the worst. This is the worst verse in the Bible. I'm going to tell you this. And having food and clothing, with these things we shall be content. There's no mention of an iPhone. There's no mention of a car. Food with food and clothing, we're content. Raise your hand if that's you. Food and clothing, you're content. That's it. That's all you need. Travel to Haiti. That's all some people have. And the irony is that there's more joy on the streets of Haiti than there are in America. I was just in Manhattan for way too long. It's not only cold because of the weather, it is cold culturally. It is the most, one of the coldest cities you can ever go to. No joy. No joy. That's why I praise God for the pastors that are penetrating that city. No joy, no contentment. Probably sitting on nest eggs in them upwards of millions of dollars, and the kids in the street will play with a ball. And we as Christians start to fall into this too. Well, the more we have, the more we can do. The Bible says, with food and clothing, we as a body believer should be content. And it says, but those who, and here's the word, but those who listen, but those who desire to be rich. It doesn't say those who are rich, though Jesus has harsh words. He says, look, it's it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than anyone else in the world. It's the only demograph that Jesus says they're going to have a hard time getting into heaven. Not because of the separate standard of salvation, but because he knows how closely the heart is tied to the things of this world for those who are rich. So when you drive down PCH and you're enamored, you envy, we should weep. Because Jesus stands there and says, you guys are going to have an incredibly hard time getting into heaven. Because he knows their heart. And to be honest, he could look at America, middle class and up, anyone making over 25,000 and say, man, it's going to be hard for some of you to get into heaven. It says, but those who desire, see now our love, our trust, our hope in the things of this world Are put on display. Not just having those things, but our desire, our trust, our faith in those things are put on display to be rich, fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts. Have you ever noticed that? Like how, look, we all do dumb things, but can you believe some of the stuff rich people do? Basketball players, football players, baseball. It's like, homie, you get paid to play a game that we played as a kid for fun. And you went and shot someone at a club you have a mansion, go home, drive your Ferrari home and just watch Netflix, stop. This is rich people fall into stupid things. And it says, into foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from their faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That pursuit will lead to a piercing of sorrows. I can't tell you how many rich people I've I've talked to. I, I work with a celebrity hairstylist in Beverly Hills. He is the loneliest person I know. And he says, because I can't trust anyone. He thinks everyone, and he's probably right in most cases. And we have a business relationship, so we constantly have to nurture our relationships, say, look, we are for you, because everyone in his life wants something from him. And the rich fall into these snares. I don't envy the rich. I got over that years ago. I don't. I don't envy the rich anymore. He says, they've pierced themselves through with many sorrows, but you, O man of God, you, children, sons, daughters, Sunday night, God speak, Thousand Oaks, right now, but you flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. When you pursue Jesus, that's what will come out of you. You'll become more gentle with people because you realize how gentle he's been with you. You will become more patient with people because you realize how patient he's been with you. You'll be more loving toward people because you realize how loving he's been toward you. The closer you get to Jesus, the less frustration you have with people. Why? Because you realize how frustrated he should be with you. The closer you get to perfection, the more you realize that, look, the the ground at the foot of the cross is level. You forgive, why? Because he forgave. Those are the things that we're to be passionate about. And so the question is, what now? The question is, what now? And I wanna conclude with this, because he says, therefore, all of this, Look, we've, we've, we've been attempting to, we've been establishing our heart in the things of the world. We've been establishing these foundations in our education, in our schooling, in our academics, in our career, in our salary, in our marriage. These can all be good things, but they can be dangerous things when they become idols. We've been establishing our heart in these things, pursuing those things. And he says, therefore, we're all on common ground. We've all done this. We're all broken in front of a holy God on this. He says, therefore, therefore, be patient, brethren. This is verse seven. Until the coming of our Lord, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. He says this. He says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That's what establishes our heart. That's what sets our perspective on its end. That's what grounds us. It's not in the things that we have. It's in who has us. It's that we begin to trust that Jesus has us and he will not let us go. The Bible says, he has been placed in the Father's hand, no man can remove no one can take you from Jesus. He took a beating once, never again. If you're his, he has you. That's how we establish our hearts. We talked about this at the beginning of the study, the law of liberty. We look at the Bible as a set of laws. There's so many laws and scholars and authors and theologians try to tally it up. Hundred, 600, 700 laws. And yet we totally blow by the fact that the Bible has thousands of promises. We see it as a book of rules and law, yet it's ultimately a book of glory and promise about who Jesus is, what he has done. And so we now establish our hearts as a body of believers in the fact that Jesus is coming. He wrote this in about 40, like 40 what? 40, the year, not 1840, 40. It's arguably the earliest New Testament. And James is like, it's coming soon. Some of you are like, well, he was wrong. How much closer are we now? James's perspective is that he's coming soon. That's what he was stoked about. Pick up a stick and he prays for him. Jesus is coming soon and they bash his skull. Establish your heart in the fact that this, that Jesus is coming. Our God is the only God. All false religions, every single one of them, line them up, I'll knock them down. They must create a God that requires you to get to him. They must. Every single false religion does. Only Christianity preaches a God that came to you. He came in the garden. He came on the cross. He's coming again. The things of this world are perishing. When our desires get mixed up in the things of this world, it will lead to destruction. And so we establish our heart on the thousands of promises that Jesus has you and he will hold you. Second Thessalonians 1, 2 through 12 describes that God will give you everything you need. Not everything you want, but everything you need. You say, I trust that God, but do you live like it? Have a seat. Do you believe when the Bible says he'll give you everything you need? I believe that. Then have a seat. Deuteronomy 31, six says that he will never leave you nor forsake you. When you come into a trial, don't we always scream, where's God? He's right there. When you run, you don't have to turn around and run back to him. You run away from him, you turn around, he's right there. He's been on your heels the whole time. One of the meta-narratives of the Bible is a God that pursued you. Read the book of Hosea. The prostitute ran, and Hosea did what? He went after her. A foreshadowing that we run, and what does Jesus do? He doesn't sit up there and say, you need to hurry up and get back. What does he say? I'm out, and he chases you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Matthew twenty-eight twenty, which was my confirmation verse when I was a little boy. It says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And the gospel is that Jesus created you in the image and the likeness of God, and we rebelled from him. So Jesus came and didn't symbolize our sin. He didn't become a picture of our sin. He wasn't a great metaphor for our sin. On the cross, everything you've thought, said, and done, in word and deed, in violation of God's will, the Bible says he made him who knew no sin to become sin. Jesus physically became your sin. And the wrath of God was poured out on him. That's why your sins are forgiven. Because God's wrath was poured out on all sin for all time. And so God's not angry anymore. He is satisfied in Jesus. And the Bible says he's coming back. And so we are to be satisfied in Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. And we repent, myself included. I love expensive t-shirts. I love, co- I love motorcycles. I love the pursuit of salary, prestige, affluence, comfort. And I've wrapped up my desires in those things. Though they may not be bad, they are dangerous. And I pray tonight as we go into a a quiet time of reflection. That we understand that we will never be satisfied in the things of this world. And they're good things to have. But they are not God things. They are not the ultimate things. And so Jesus, I pray tonight that we would be leveled. That we would be repentant. That we would be excited, that we would be encouraged, that we would be on mission to pursue the things of you. Because only you will truly satisfy our eternal desire, our eternal hunger, our eternal thirst for more. And so tonight, would you give us more of you? Holy Spirit, would you impress upon the hearts of your people a desire to want more of you? Not just tonight, this week, this just kicks off our week. Holy Spirit, be so thick in this room tonight that we would see Jesus more high and lifted up and realize that we'll only be satisfied in him. For your glory we pray. Amen. We're gonna go into a time of, of quiet worship and communion. Communion is not magical. Nothing happens magically. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. It's a remembrance of what Jesus absorbed, the wrath of God that he absorbed on the cross so that he could reconcile us. He could be a bridge from our island of sinfulness to God's island of holiness. That God would be th- that, that bridge, that Jesus would span that chasm. And so we take it in remembrance. We take the bread first because we remember that his body was broken as our sin. And then we take the cup because we realize that as the juice represents the blood, his blood took away our sin. It didn't just cover it like the sacrifices in the Old Testament, it took it away. And so I really want us to pray in this moment to have the Holy Spirit press upon him to examine your own life in the areas in which we've placed our hope and our faith and our trust and our love in the things that are perishing. And simply ask the Holy Spirit to recalibrate. Look, we can't do it on our own. Ask the Holy Spirit to recalibrate our perspective and that we would be satisfied first, foremost, primarily, and only in Jesus. Amen? Let's sing.